If you would turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, Hebrews 8. This is a unique letter within Scripture. It is a letter, but it's not like others. It is really a a sermon letter. And from what we gather, even from the name, the writer is writing to the, the Jewish people, Hebrews. We don't know who exactly the author is, the Lord knows, and I would suspect that even the recipients knew who the writer was. But there is a particular purpose that this author is striving to convey, and that simply Jesus is better. But he's also a better high priest. So before we jump directly into Hebrews 8, I want to kind of give us the context here. In the beginning, in Hebrews 1, the writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So now this is how he begins. He's saying that Jesus himself is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We saw this morning in Revelation that even as the angel was speaking to John, what was John's, albeit misguided, reaction? He bowed down and worshiped. If an angel were to appear to us this moment, we would be fearful because they are amazing. If you were to read about the description of what angels are like, we would really cower in fear. And this is amazing. And we would be tempted in a misguided way to worship these beings. But what does the author of Hebrews say? He says that although angels really are amazing, and as we see in chapter 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, He says that Jesus is better. Why? Because although angels are amazing and they are the messengers of God, they were bringing a message from God. But Jesus himself is better. Why? Because he is the very message of God himself. 
And so by, his, by who he is, he is better than angels. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been, test, it has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? And let me just say this, the author knows exactly where this passage he's quoting from. He knows exactly where it is. We read it at the beginning of service. But what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now we're speaking of the second person of the Trinity. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great God. There's mystery here. How can one being have three persons? But there's a mystery here that we, we are not going to attempt even to explain it. But even if we tried, we would want to just end up in worship because of how holy and great our God is. But the author is speaking of Christ. The eternal Son of God. And yet, because of his very nature, he was above all things. All creation, including angels. And yet, the author says, you made him for a little lower than the angels. And this is speaking of Christ coming as man. You have an eternal God, God of very God, stepping into creation as a baby, becoming fully man. So now he is God of very God and man of very man. Verse 9, but we see him who is a little lower who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Precisely because of the purpose for which he came, to die, the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Up in verse 1, the writer produces a warning. He's speaking of angels, and if angels provided a message of salvation that was great, even from that, from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drive, drift away from it. So now he's comparing and contrasting the message from angels with something that we should believe. How much more, because Christ is on the scene, that we should believe, lest we drift away from it. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make satisfaction of God's wrath for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he's, he's ramping up here. Chapter 3, he starts to speak of Moses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a holy and a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So now he brings up Moses, and Moses was revered greatly among the people. And yet, Moses was faithful only as a servant, and a servant will never save. Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus himself served because he served as a son. The one who enjoyed the eternal love and communion and fellowship of the Father by the Spirit, the Father lavishing his love upon the Son and the Son receiving that lavish love for eternity past. And yet, he becomes man, and so now he picks up the mantle that Adam failed at that even Israel failed at. And so Jesus picks up a mantle because he is the son, but he acts like he's trying to gain God's favor for us. And so he's better than Moses because he served as a son. There are particularly three times that the author, as he's making these points, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7 of chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so my plea, even now, if you hear the sound of my voice today, if you hear the Lord calling, do not harden your heart. If you don't know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the salvation, the Savior of the world, if you don't know him, trust him. He will save you to the uttermost.
He continues in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so we need to, as he says in verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin is very deceitful. Our hearts, as Jeremiah tells us, is, is desperately sick and wicked. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, every one of us. And if we're not repenting of our sin and trusting Christ, we have we're not walking in the way of Christian love or we're not walking in the way that Christ has set before us. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Unbelief is rebellion. We are in our sin, in rebellion. Children of wrath, before we come to Christ. He says, verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So a whole generation did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So Christian, let's strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Sometimes life will get you hard and you begin to question, you begin to wonder, is this worth it? Is, did, did God really save me? Am I really one of his children? God knows those struggles. God knows when you are questioning. Don't stop believing in Jesus. Because God knows. Verse 12 of chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. He knows. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
And so Jesus is even our better rest. The promise of rest for the people of God, they didn't make it because of unbelief. But Jesus ultimately is our rest. Just trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will pull you forward towards him. The writer, the author, begins to discuss the high priest Melchizedek, and I don't want to go too deep into that. You can look at, listen to the previous message on Melchizedek, but let me just point this out, that Melchizedek from the author's perspective, was a great high priest of God. And when Abraham gave him tithes, it demonstrated that Melchizedek is greater than even Abraham. And Jesus follows in the line of the high priest Melchizedek. Verse 13 of chapter 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom he's to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So let me restate this a different way. You have the eternal God, the Son, became man, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And at that very moment, his life of suffering began. But it was not just that. It was, he, be, he became a, it was a priestly life. Everything he did was to take up all that was required of us so that he could come to God and offer it 
once for all. And so finally getting into our main passage, let me read Hebrews 7 verse 25 and then we'll get into chapter 8. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. And now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The author is pulling no punches right now. We have such a high priest. Why? Because he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In the Old Covenant, he had the tabernacle with two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. Chapter 9 kind of uh, tells us a little bit about the tent. For a tent, verse 2 of chapter 9, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So this is... What the author is comparing, there's this tent that the old covenant had set up, and the priests would do their daily sacrificial rituals daily, coming in and out. He says in verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus and it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So now he's comparing and contrasting. And if you notice, when the author is comparing something with Christ, he's always going from the lesser to the greater. So in the old covenant, the priests would take their blood and, and put it on the altars. And yet... The author tells us in verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. What is a shadow? A shadow is always cast by something else. When you're in the sun and you look behind you and the sun's in front of you, you look behind you, you'll see your shadow. Your shadow is always cast by something else. And so they participated in the sacrificial system, but they were serving a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And so when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so you have these priests that were going in and out. And he even mentions in verse 3, for every... Um, a, uh, verse 4, now if he were on earth... If Christ was on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So there's something better going on here. They serve a copy and a shadow and Christ is serving the real and better Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. How can 
how can the author say that if the old covenant was good and the law was good, how can he say that this new covenant is better than the old? Verse 8 tells us the answer. Well, let me read verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with your fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. The fault in the covenant was their sin and their unbelief. That is what makes the old covenant Not as good. The new covenant. As the writer says, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, here's what makes the new covenant better. Verse 10 I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant, as we saw this morning, in communion, There is the new covenant in Christ's blood. The old covenant only showed and looked at the external aspect that pointed to something real, to something that was substantial. Even Paul tells us that the the regulations for food and festivals was just a copy But Christ himself is the substance. So we have a new covenant in Christ's blood because he's bringing it on himself. Himself is the new covenant. And so all those who trust him, what do we? We receive his laws written on our minds and our hearts. And we become his people. Because we know the Lord. And God shows mercy. And the results, the end of verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. We're told elsewhere that our sins are cast into the depths of the sea Further, 
Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. It's probably obvious that when we go north, at some point, we're going to end up going south. But when you go west, you will never meet east. That should comfort you. That should draw you closer to the Savior, to our great high priest. Because we have such a high priest. Don't struggle to fulfill what God has commanded us to do. Trust Christ because he has fulfilled it all for you. And as we do what God has commanded us to do, we're not doing to gain anything. We do it because we have gained everything in Christ. And so we are free, not that we really want to, but because of the nature that we, that of our sin, we're going to fail. We're going to do things wrong. We're going to insult others. We're going to do things that are going to make others upset. Not that we're trying to, but that's just the nature of, of the world today. We're in the already. There's this struggle. But we don't shrink back. We press forward because Christ himself has accomplished everything. And so as we pursue Christ and we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and then we love each other like we love ourselves, we fulfill the law. So Jesus is a better high priest because he has accomplished a salvation that we could never attempt to accomplish. So in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What did Jesus say? He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come, what? To fulfill it. So when Jesus was born, he started to bend back mankind towards God. He fulfilled everything that was required of us. He fulfilled the old covenant. So it wasn't like he came and kicked it to the side so that he could establish something. He fulfills everything that the old covenant possessed and he reestablished everything in him by his blood, the new covenant. And so may I say, because of this great salvation, today, while it is today, do not harden your heart. 
If you, you are alive and breathing, do not harden your heart. Christ died for you. Christian, don't give up. There are times when life knocks you down and you are kicked in the ribs multiple times and you're hurting and there's suffering, broken relationships, problems at work, the car's breaking down, the house is having problems. There's, there's, God forbid, issues within the church. No one's meeting my needs. Look to Christ. He is the one that will give you rest. He is the one that will make all things worth it. The author here, as he's working through all of his arguments, he rests it on the resurrection. And when you were to look throughout Hebrews, the author is saying that because Christ is risen, He is seated at the right hand. That is the seat of privilege, power, and dominion. And so this is our high priests. We have such a high priest. Go to him. As Peter tells us, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. How do you know God cares for you? Look to Jesus. You may think, I, I, don't, I don't see that God is, is speaking to me. Look to his word. His word is here so that we can glean what God has for us. Jesus is the final word of God to man. Jesus is the one who was the law giver. And yet he placed himself as the one who received the law. Jesus has shown us an example of how to love God and love others by serving, confronting, exhorting each other to love and to good works. But he's more than an example. He is the high priest. This is, this is a part of his role as mediator between God and man. He mediates God's message in himself. Everything from God is through Christ to us. And as man, he provides the perfect 
and good response of man to God for us. So don't trust in the strength of your faith. Don't trust in your effort or your knowledge or your supposed wisdom. Trust Christ because he is everything. Because even in our imperfect responses, our imperfect efforts, he is the one who perfects everything that we do. So that as we're doing, it's as if Christ has done it. So remind yourselves, we have such a high priest. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word deep into our hearts, that we may be in awe of our Savior, Jesus who took upon himself man and he suffered and died, yet he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to trust Christ, that our faith would be bolstered and strengthened Not that we're trusting in our own strength of faith, but that we trust the Christ in whom our faith is placed. We pray these things in your dear Savior, in our dear Savior's name. Amen.